0: Hey, I'm Ruben from Dub. Welcome to Connection Loop, our actionable podcast about building businesses with daily human connections. Connection Loop features long form interviews with fascinating people in sales, marketing, and beyond. Enjoy today's episode and learn more about Dub at dub.com. And we are live. Hey guys, it's Ruben from Dub. This is Dub's podcast, Connection Loop. And this podcast is all about exploring the stories. Of uh, The folks in our community, people that we learn about, people that we discover, I had a chance to kind of stumble upon a little bit of content that Kurt had actually put on LinkedIn. And I was sort of intrigued by his background. His bio um, comes with great experience as a speaker, as an author, as a trainer, podcast host. Um, Kurt, tell me a little bit about yourself.
1: Yeah. You know, I built three profitable businesses. They've all done six figures in year one, including a very successful, I was earning seven figure revenue PR and ad agency that I scaled over the span of 13 years, kind of reverse engineering from the end. I shut it down at peak revenue because the money was great, but I was totally unfulfilled and it didn't give me the freedom in my life that I desired. And I had to make a lot of mistakes over the years and how I built that company. You know, I learned the hard lesson that there's a difference between growing a company and scaling a company. Growing a company just looks at the dollars and cents. You bring in that paycheck, you bring in the revenue, regardless of how your relationships, your mental, physical health, all those other things are happening. Scaling a company means that you provide the maximum value to the customers you really want to work with, the customers who value what you provide, and you do it in a way that empowers you to still live the lifestyle you want to live, where your relationships are excellent, your mental, your physical health is excellent, your life is aligned the three facets of your life, yourself, your family, your work are all aligned. And so I I shut down the agency at peak revenue to help others build lives of freedom and fulfillment. I work with entrepreneurs and I also work with corporate teams to help them make them more uh, engaged, productive, and profitable.
0: That's incredible that you kind of built your business. Um, You were seeing obviously great success with that and that you had made a personal choice to sort of pivot your career path to really find your fulfillment. I mean, talk to me about that. Now that you've been, how long has it been since this occurred?
1: Almost, uh, it's over two years, maybe two, three years. I had been side hustle coaching for several years. And, You know, about four years into my company, I realized something was broken. I was overwhelmed. I wanted to give it up four years, five years into it. And even though I worked from home at the time, we had two kids. Now I have four. I wasn't seeing my wife. I wasn't seeing my kids. I was 40 pounds heavier than I was now. I was on a bunch of prescription drugs. I was having anxiety attacks. And I did something that sounds crazy, but I fired half my clients, raised my prices. I started working within more of my strengths and what I do better. And the next year I doubled my revenue. And so I built freedom in terms of time and money, but my dad uh, passed away in 2012 and my dad was my hero. He worked on the space program. He worked on the Mars Mariner mission, uh, designed uh, technology on fighter jets led the team that developed all the electronic switches on the Boeing 777, all these cool things he did in his career. And at his wake, there's grown men with tears in their eyes and not a damn person mentioned anything my dad did with his career. It was all about husband, father, family, volunteer at church, volunteer in the community. And that was like a slap in my face because I had built some freedom in terms of money, in terms of time, but I didn't have fulfillment. And I decided there and then to do something about it, but I still didn't do anything for several years because I was trapped in what you call that comfort zone of misery, where the paycheck is just good enough, where, hey, you're a man and that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to put your head down and get that paycheck. So I felt guilty for not feeling fulfilled. So it took a while. I started side hustle coaching. People invited me to coach them. Hey, you've built these businesses. This is great. And so I did that. And on the days that I coached, I realized, you know what? This is it. I find fulfillment in helping others do this and help others build and develop and not not so much with my agency so it took several years and one day i was supposed to be off on vacation I woke up in the morning, all my clients knew I was supposed to be on vacation, but that didn't stop them from up on this call, get us this email, send us that report, all that stuff. And I woke up that Tuesday morning and I went to my wife and I said, I'm done. It's over. I pulled the plug and she said, it's about time. Cause she saw what it was doing to me, relationships, everything else. And I jumped off the Titanic without a life preserver and I had to do what I knew how to do, which was sell, build another company, get clients that I wanted to work with and who valued me and build a business that allowed me to truly scale while living the lifestyle I want to live with my family.
0: So what does it look like now? Have you reached that point where you feel like you're fulfilled? Are you living your best life, you know, relationships with your family, friends? What does that all look like now, now that you made that choice?
1: yeah definitely fulfilled you know everything could always be stronger and and more excellent right so i have gratitude and gratitude is important but a lot of people use gratitude as an excuse for guilt and stagnation so every morning i wake up and i ask myself two questions what's awesome about today that's the gratitude portion but i don't stop there and i think it's important people don't stop there because there's a lot of people who want to focus on this person's more privileged or you're more privileged you should just be happy for what you have well I got news for you, anyone who's listening to this, who has a smartphone, who has a computer, who's able to get on LinkedIn, listen to a podcast, is more privileged than like 99% of the world. So someone's always gonna be worse off than you. You owe it to them to make the world better by reaching for more in your life, more freedom, more fulfillment, because when you're at your best, your relationships are at your best. Listen, when you're not fulfilled, when you're not free, it's not a victimless crime, right? Because it affects the people around you. It affects your loved ones, your kids, your spouse, your partner, whatever, your loved ones. It affects your community because they're not getting the best that you have to offer. So gratitude's important. But that second question is, what can I do to make today even more awesome? So I'm always looking to make things even more awesome. But my family and I, we travel the world. You know, I set a goal of at tops working 12 to 14 hours a week. This morning, one of my big outcomes for the day is I went for an hour walk with my daughter. When we're done here, I'm going to go on the back deck, have a glass of bourbon, and look out on the marsh, the beautiful marsh here that we live on. And listen, I'm doing this podcast with you. I did a live training earlier in one of my masterminds. And before that, I taught a master class in 10X Factory, an entrepreneurship mastermind as well. So I mix that work. I have an aligned life between, a lot of people seek work-life balance. It's about alignment, not balance. A lot of people think balance and it's like they go through life like walking on a tightrope, trying not to fall off and die. That's no way to go through life, right? The key is alignment, aligning the three facets to your life, self, family, and work in a way that works for you.
0: Okay, so give us some tips and tricks here. I mean, what are some things that we can do? I mean, not all of us are in a situation where We're fully happy with our employment situation. I've definitely been there in my life. You know, whether as an entrepreneur, not satisfied with growth goals or with, you know, the success, true potential, or as an employee working for someone else or someone that's sort of in between those two places, what can we do better in our lives to reach that fulfillment, to find that alignment?
1: Yeah. First, it's important to have an abundance mindset, to realize that you're in control, that you are an autonomous human being and you can design your life. If you're in that job that leaves you unfulfilled, that sucks your soul, that's a toxic workplace, realize that, believe it or not, money is renewable. Time is not. Every day you go by that you're unfulfilled, that you're in a job that sucks your soul, that feels more like a prison than a business is a day you're never going to have back. So you got to commit to make that change. Now, I have in my book, it's called Five Pillars of the Freedom Lifestyle. There are these five pillars. I used to have 12 pillars and all this, and I've worked with hundreds of people over the last several years and distilled it down to five. The first is superpowers. I'm a Gallup-certified strengths trainer. Each and every human being is endowed with 34 talent themes. They're those naturally recurring patterns of thought, feeling, and behavior, the things and activities and behaviors that come naturally. When you invest in them every day and you work them out like you would work out a muscle at the gym, everyone has the same muscles, right? We all have muscles, but not all of us are Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? He goes and he works them out. It's like that with those thoughts and behaviors. You work them out, you turn them into strengths. You get in your strength zone. Gallup's been doing this for 40 plus years. They know that people who work in their strength zone instead of trying to focus on fixing their weaknesses but amplifying their strengths, we know they're more productive, they're more efficient, they have a better quality of life, things flow instead of grind. When you start amplifying those and those strengths and combining with your knowledge, your skills, your passion, what you love to do, you turn them into superpowers. So you get into that superpower zone every day. That's pillar number one. The second pillar is vision identifying where the hell you want to end up in your life, that one to two sentences that pairs your purpose for living with the impact you want to make on the world. It's that guiding star. And I get a lot of questions. Uh, well, shouldn't my vision change? Nope. If it changes, it's not the right vision. It's an objective. That vision is where you want to end up. Your guiding star when life knocks you on your butt, you dust yourself off. You look around and you're like, there it is. I'm going to keep heading that direction. The next pillar is alignment. We already talked about that. Instead of work-life balance, take that term, throw it out. There's not work and life. There's just life. And the key is aligning those three facets to your life. The next pillar is outcomes, where you reverse engineer that vision. So every year, every month, every week, every day, you know the three outcomes you need to achieve to win the day, to move you toward that vision every day. And the fifth pillar is flow. It's the cumulative effect of the first four pillars where you get in that state of flow. A lot of folks, a lot of gurus, I call them hustle and grind pornographers. They'd have you believe that success is all about fitting three hours of work into a 14 hour day, sleeping under your desk or sleeping when you're dead, right? And so there's a lot of entrepreneurs who burn out, who don't focus on their outcomes. They don't even know their outcomes. They don't have a clear vision. They just start throwing stuff against the wall to see what sticks. So those are the five pillars.
0: And then, so how do you sort of live your life with these pillars? Um, Is it something that you're sort of cognizant about on a sort of day-to-day basis? Or is it something that has sort of mended into your existing flow?
1: Uh, Both. And, you know, every day, you know, you make these decisions and you're in the middle of doing something, you commit to something, you're like, wait a second, does this allow me to work in my superpowers? Is this moving me toward my vision? Is it helping me live an aligned life, the lifestyle I want to live? You know, if those questions are no, if someone offers me a speaking gig. Right. It's not in my wheelhouse. I got to travel eight hours to get there. It's going to take me away from my family and hurt my alignment. And it's really on a topic and an audience that doesn't really fit my vision, which is helping individuals live lives of freedom and fulfillment. Even if the money is great, I got to look at that and weigh the money against alignment, against my vision, against my superpowers and say yes or no. You know, the reason that I learned the hard way that first four or five years, remember I said I fired half my clients. I had a scarcity mindset. It wasn't an abundance mindset. The scarcity mindset is someone offers you money, take it. I don't care if it's less than I'm worth. I got to take the money and I'll figure it out later, right? Well, the problem then is, you know, the lowest paying clients take the most time and they take away from me going out and selling to higher ticket clients. They take away from the client, the higher ticket clients who deserve my best, all that good stuff. And so if I just for some money take away and take three days out of my life to go do this, that doesn't fit my vision, my superpowers you know, I'm taking away from my vision in terms of freedom and fulfillment with my family. I'm taking away probably from some self-care over those three days. I'm taking away from my vision if it's someone I don't want to speak to, if it's not the right audience, all that good stuff. And so having these five pillars, yes, it should mend in, but you also have to be int- intentional about it every day. And one big thing is it helps you say no more often. You know, if it's not a hell yes, meaning it fits my vision, fits my outcomes, fits where I want to go with my life, then it's easy to say, nope, sorry,
0: so here's sort of my perspective on this. I mean, as human beings, we haven't always been in this mindset of being able to live this abundance mindset, right? We actually come from being survivors, right? In the wild, in the jungle, in the forest, our goal was to live a life knowing that there's scarcity, knowing that one must make certain choices in order to survive, right? Right. So this idea of living your best life and being, quote unquote, rich, wealthy, fulfilled, etc., to many people, it's, it's a total luxury because they still suffer from that survival mindset, which is important to a certain extent. Sure. But this idea of being you know, rich, this idea of being wealthy, this idea of being enlightened, this idea of being fulfilled, for a lot of people, they don't feel like it's accessible. They feel like they're stuck, they're not making the right choices, and that it would take them realize that sort of necessity to be in that abundance mindset now how can people break that mold and get onto that better path
1: yeah so the first thing is ask yourself every day those two questions what's awesome about today and what could make today even more awesome you know my dad he lived you know traditionally people worked in that job for 40 years, right? And he did that over time. Before I was born, he was a lot older than I was. We had half brothers and I had half brothers and sisters. He was married before. And before that, he did not live a, a life of alignment, right? He missed my birth because he was launching the first digital sewing machine. Like picked up my mom from the hospital with his entire board of directors in the van and made her get in the van with her baby in her robe from the hospital, right? I mean, this was a guy who always put work first because he was in survival mode, right? My grandfather had come over from Italy, didn't speak a word of English, got off the boat, got a job. You know, my dad learned that growing up through the Great Depression. And there's important lessons to be learned from that, right? Survival mode is good. However, you know, when he was in his... This was the early 80s. I was about eight or nine years old. He was in his mid-50s. He lost his job. Now, he had been president of these companies, et cetera. He wasn't great with money, didn't save up a bunch of money. We had a big mortgage, and he kept trying to find a job. You're in your mid-50s looking for a you know, management job, ageism, whatever you want to call it, is real, right? And so he had trouble getting it, and he kept looking at that for a while. Now, during that time, he was in survival mode and he didn't want to take government money. He didn't want to take, you know, ask for help. He got a job delivering newspapers. And so he would wake me up. He and my mom would wake me up at like three in the morning. We'd go to this facility and bag the newspapers. Your hands would be black right from the ink. We hopped in a car and I would help him deliver newspapers. It was survival mode. I learned that from him. But he did that for a while. That must have been painful. He never complained, never turned himself into a victim, never said, damn it, it's ageism. And I can't do this, and something's got to be done about it. You know what? Something was done. He took ownership of it. He got a job delivering newspapers. But after a while, he said, you know what? Yeah, I'm in my mid-50s, but I can redefine my life right now. He had always worked for someone else. He started a company, reinvented himself at like age 55 into a management consultant, went on to have another 25-year career where he designed the switches on the Boeing 777, got patents, had this incredible career, worked for large corporations consulting them. But you know what? In that time, he never missed a recital, never missed a soccer practice. Then he started volunteering. Then he started showing up to things. So not only did he realize the hard way that survival mode was actually killing his relationships and killing his family. It wasn't just all about paycheck. He redefined himself, started his own company when people said he couldn't do it, took ownership, maybe made some less money, but was richer and wealthier where it matters, which was with his relationships, with his family, with helping the community around him. And so, you know, I've learned that way. Yes, survival mode is important. But at some point, go live your dream. Define what you want to do. Stop being miserable and go do it. Build that company. If you want to, you know, you can be fulfilled in a nine-to-five. Yeah.
0: yeah. Exactly, exactly. Okay, so here's one for you. So I have heard from you. So that's a very compelling story. Um, Obviously, you're very influenced by your father's path. Very, very inspirational. I feel the same way. You know, my father, immigrant, sort of that immigrant work ethic came from India. He actually studied his walking up slopes both ways in the snow story is he used to actually study on the street, on the curb to use the streetlights because they didn't have electricity inside of their tiny little place where they had all these, you know, almost 10 people in a, in a small little room. So, you know, I sort of come from that, that work ethic, that inspiration, you know, he did the best that he could to have that work-life balance, to have that alignment. It wasn't as easy as it could have been, you know, as a doctor, as a busy guy trying to save lives, but he did an incredible job raising us. My question for you though, is what is some of the suffering that you've endured? Now, I understand that you Sort of witnessed your father go through some trials and tribulations, some ups and some downs, some reinventions. But what are some of the things that specifically have inspired you based on your suffering in your past?
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, the opening chapter of my book starts with me. It was a scene. I remember it so clearly and the lights were off in my bedroom. I was sitting on the end of my bed, rocking back and forth like a crazy person. Right. And I thought I was going crazy. And my kids, we had two kids at the time were playing out in the hallway. My wife peeked her head in to say like, what's the matter with you? Are you okay? And I told her, get the kids out of here, like bring them down into the basement, bring them outside. They weren't being bad. They were just playing. I couldn't stand the sound of their voice. And You know, I was like, oh, am I going crazy? You know, deep down, I knew exactly what was happening. I was having an anxiety attack. And it wasn't the first and wouldn't be the last. I was 40 pounds heavier than than I am right now. I was on a cocktail of different things that I thought were going to make me better. They didn't. They masked in some cases. They made some things worse. And, you know, going through life like that, feeling like you're going crazy, having anxiety attacks and feeling guilty about it because I'm doing what I was supposed to do, right? I'm a man, I'm supposed to earn money in the paycheck. What do I have to feel guilty about? I have a house, I got a car, I got a roof over my head, right? And you know, it's interesting. A lot of people are shocked when I share this, but when I ask a lot of people, who do you think are, you know, the part of our population in the U.S. that commit suicide at the highest rate? If you, oh, it's teenagers or whatever. It's men aged 45 to 54. By the way, it's white men, people who are so-called, they have it all, they're privileged, right? Because a lot of times, you know, women have depression at a much higher rate, but they seek help. Men, they get depressed, they live in what Henry David Thoreau called the life of quiet desperation. Maybe they went into a major or they went into a job because their dad said that's what they were supposed to do. That's practical. That's responsible. Right. And 25 years into it, they're like, I'm not fulfilled. I'm living a life. Someone else wanted for me. I have a house that I can't afford, or at least I can afford it, but I can't do those other things in my life that we want to do. We want to travel. We want to do all these things. I'm behind on everything, but you know what? I feel guilty about it. Cause I'm a man. This is what I'm supposed to do. And I can't talk to anyone about it because I'm supposed to be like John Wayne. Right. Right? And here I talked about my father and I talked about toughness and I think there's a need for toughness, but you know, there's a lot of people like, for instance, I've been known to be stupid in the gym where I feel a twinge and I keep doing the squats anyways, right? That's stupidity. Cause then I tear my muscle and then I can't work out for six months, right? It's like that a lot in our lives. We're unfulfilled. We're ruining our relationships. We have toxic mentality, a mental state. We're in a job that unfulfills us. We hate our lives, but we're men and we're supposed to push through. That's not toughness, that's stupidity, toughness is the survival instinct, what my dad did, and then realizing, shit, I'm gonna design the life I want. And so, yeah, men 45 to 54, they have it all. They're privileged, they're white, they're all this stuff, and they're committing suicide. Like seven in 10 suicides in America are white men 45 to 54, and I don't say that to make anyone feel sorry for white men and all that. By the way, I think second is like men like 80 and 85, right? They bottle this up inside of them, they live this life, according to success, defined by who someone else, right? Defined by a magazine, defined by society. And they go through this quiet suffering. Now what Thoreau called quiet desperation, I call it comfort zone of misery, where it's this comfort zone. You're comfortable. The money's good. You can survive like that for a while. You're on the raft floating, right? And then at some point you realize, wow, I'm 700 miles from shore. And I hate this, (laughs) right? And then you can either make a change or you can keep floating along. So is my suffering worse than someone else's suffering? Yes, in some cases, no in others. But I came to realize that if I want to be the man that I was destined to be, if I wanted to be the best husband that I could be for my wife, if I wanted to be the best father I could be to my kids, if I wanted to really make an impact on the world, which I didn't feel like I was doing at that point, then I had to make a change. And making that change and coming to that realization, sometimes even just admitting that you need it, can be the toughest thing in the world.
0: You know, this reminds me of the Japanese harakiri, you know, the honor suicide, you know, where a warrior, a businessman finds himself in a predicament that he cannot get out of. And the right thing for him to do is to just exit this place to save others from misery and to potentially save himself from shame, which is such a terrible and such a sad thing. I think that you speak about a really interesting theme about this idea that, you know, a man, that masculine, sometimes alpha character, you know, has to be bulletproof. They cannot sort of withstand, they cannot express emotions, they cannot deal with those emotions, they cannot seek help on those emotions. Very interesting statistic about the fact that women are much more likely to suffer from depression, but they seek the help. So speaking to men, what are some of the things that we as men can do to have a better perspective, do a better job to maintain our mental health, to invest in ourselves and get our emotions out and seek help when we need it?
1: Yeah. I mean, one important thing that I see that is a lot of folks I work with, you know, this is anecdotal from people I've worked with, right. And from my own experience. But remember, I told you that I woke up on that Tuesday and I said, I'm done and I got to go tell my wife. Right. And I thought I was convinced in my head I had been hiding it. She thought I was happy. When I went and told her, she said, it's about time. She knew, right? But we hadn't communicated. We didn't have these discussions. And part of the thing that held me back was going and admitting to her. I've talked to a lot of folks. And by the way, this isn't just men, women too. They want to make a change in their life. They're not fulfilled. They don't talk to their spouse or their significant other about it. And because of that, A, it's holding them back because they they and their spouse communicate by passive aggressive comment, right? (laughs) You know, where they don't have a real discussion, It also hurts their relationships. I had one client who I said, you know, we're going to go through this process now. We're leading him through the five pillars. And I said, one of the most important things you can do is bring your wife in on the front end. Talk about why you're doing this. Because I have a lot of folks who are like, I'm doing this coaching program. My wife is terrified because she doesn't know what it's about. And she thinks you're just going to tell me to quit my job and move to the mountains, which I, I don't do. It's about finding what's right for you. And I said, well, just bring her along, share the activities with her. And after several weeks, like I said, you know, our marriage has never been stronger. My wife actually looks at me as a partner and knows that I consider her a member of the team. I think that's so important because, like I said, men don't talk to people about it. And they they are afraid to talk to their wives about it. And a lot of folks, one in general who I like, he does a lot of videos and he coaches, tells you that you're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to be a man and just tough it out. Yeah, you can tough it out. You know, any entrepreneur knows you're going to tough it out. But if you're doing what you love, you know, it was very easy for me to build my PR and ad agency. I was good at sales. I could go out and get $25,000 retainers, million dollar ad buys like that. Hated it. Building my speaking training coaching company has been the hardest thing I've ever done, but I love it. And so often the things we love to do are the hardest, but I would say, listen, remember what I said about alignment? And it's relationships, right? It's those three facets, your relationships, yourself, and your work. If you're not at 100%, the other two aren't going to be at 100%. But relationships are so important. Harvard did a study on human fulfillment. 80-plus years it's been running. They started with these undergrads 80-plus years ago. And when they at that time, they said, what do you think is going to be the key to fulfillment in your life? They said money, status, all this vanity stuff, right? 80-plus years later, and I'm sure some learned the hard way, not even close. It was relationships, having someone to share this with, not wanting to die alone. If those relationships aren't there, you know what? You're not going to be able to get through the hard times. Work is going to suck. Even if, you have, if you're married and call it a relationship, if you don't have someone to talk to, you ever hear these stories of all of a sudden you think they have a good marriage and the husband takes the ultimate solution and takes his own life? What happened there? You know, in some cases you don't know, but maybe the relationships aren't as strong. We look at surface level things, but true communication is so important. And that's the cornerstone of a strong relationship.
0: So, I mean, one of the things that I speak to a lot of entrepreneurs about risk, you know, a Mm -hmm. risk profile, everyone has a different risk profile that affects founders. It affects employees. It affects couples, relationships, friendships. It really affects everyone, right? Now, what sort of advice do you have for folks that understand that risk profiles are potentially different? This could be founders, this could be a couple, you know, how can two people or a group of people maintain a balance and acceptance of varying levels of risk on a specific activity or for a larger path, larger vision?
1: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, so I'll have some folks come to me and they'll say, yeah, listen, I'm, I'm making decent money I don't have that much money saved up though, you know, because I spent it all in the house and the cars and all this other stuff. So I don't have a lot of money saved up and my relationship, not at hundred percent. My health isn't at hundred percent. And I'll say, okay, what's holding you back from just jumping in and making a change? You've always wanted to start, start this own business, right? And he'll throw out a number, 200 grand, 150 grand, 250, whatever it is. I said, okay. So is that how much you want for your wife? If I paid you that much, could I have your wife? What are you talking about? What are you talking about? I said, well, you're already making that much money, but your relationship sucks your health sucks, all that. You're going to lose your wife because you're going to be dead or she's going to leave you. So right now, that number that you gave me is the ransom for your wife, right? Because you already have that money. So why don't you take a risk? What's more important, your relationships with your wife? Because when I offered you that money for your wife, you got all upset with me, right? But you're willing to give your wife away for that much money. And it's kind of cold water in their face. By the same token, I have a guy and a lot of folks who say, well, I'm in a secure, steady job. In this economic environment, are you? I've had a number of people who've jumped into the program and they're so scared about jumping out of their job and starting their own business. And you know what happens unexpectedly in the middle of the program, they get fired. They didn't even see it coming. Oh wait, I thought your job was secure. What if you had taken time to build that runway? See, that's the thing. A lot of folks don't even want to admit that they want to build their company or that they can build their company, right? Because once you say it out loud, then it's real. Then you got to make it happen. And then they put off starting to reverse engineer and build that runway so that I want to be out of my job. You know, I was in denial for a long time and the desperation got so loud. What did I do? I shut it down overnight. I don't recommend that for people. (laughs) You know, yeah, there's benefits to it. But if I could have started earlier and built that runway so that when the time was ready, that company was ready to go, could be a three-month runway, could be a six-month runway, depending on your risk profile, depending on how much money you have in savings, all that good stuff, right? Everyone's different. You have four kids. You have no kids. You're married. You're not married. Whatever. Building that runway. And if you're unfulfilled and you want to go for it, my best advice is why not start building that runway like this afternoon and reverse engineering and setting that deadline for freedom? Listen, I want to be out of this job July 31st of 2020. Okay, how many days are that? Or what's today? As we're recording this, this is the 27th. All right, let's say I want to be out of my job by next September 27th. Okay, you know what? You got 365 days worth of outcomes to achieve to get the hell out of your job September 27th. What are you going to do about it? But often people say that and then they wait till September 1st of next year and then they're like, oh, well, I don't have money saved up. I don't have anything done, so I'm not going to do it now. Start building that runway now. Building that runway is so empowering so that you're not forced into a corner and that you have choices. And if you're in a place where you haven't built that runway and you're still like at the point where you're like a cornered tiger and you got to do something, right? You got to leave the job, you know, then it depends. I ask you, you know, how much money do you have saved? How much is your mental health worth to it? You know, can you go get a job at Starbucks or delivering a newspaper to survive while you build your next thing? If getting out of your job now is that important, your relationships, your health and all that good stuff, you know, it, it depends obviously like on your risk profile, but start building that runway now. Like what a lot of people building the runway, they, they hear the term massive action and they think massive action is going in and quitting right now. No, in many cases, massive action is deciding I want out of this job. I'm going to build my business. I'm going to launch it by July 1st reverse engineer it to today and start building that runway. Building that runway sometimes is so hard because then they're like, it's real. What if I build the runway and I can't do it? All those limiting beliefs get in their head.
0: Well, there's kind of two schools of thought on something like this. A lot of folks might say, well, there's a paradox here because I can't build my runway because in order for me to start to set up my business, I need to go moonlight and I need to get that side hustle and I need to make investments. I need to spend money I need to spend my time. You know, is my career going to get affected by this? Who knows? The other mindset is sales cures all, you know, if you have a side hustle and if you have some ability to sell, if you have something to sell, if you have something embryonic, That you can actually package and put out there, even though that's not ultimately what the product or the service is going to be, but at least something to kind of monetize it, that you can cure all and you can pursue parallel tracks. What are some of the objections that you've heard and what are some ways that people can overcome that planning out for that July 1st launch?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, in many cases, people have to be honest with themselves. And I believe in something called first principles reasoning, where when you have a limiting belief or anyone, if anyone tells you anything and said, this is a fact, you know, you take it as an assumption. You check the premises of that, you peel the onion and you roll it back to ask key questions to find out, is that a fact? Is my limiting belief real? Or is it an assumption to which I can find truth, right? Like, okay, yeah, in the latter respect, I have someone who just quit her job and she was afraid to leave her job. She put in her notice, right? She was gonna have be on the job for three months. About a month into that, I had to talk her off the ledge. Like, oh my gosh, what did I do? I'm not going to have the, uh, uh, oh, It's like, okay, start selling. Don't worry about your logo. Don't worry about your website. Don't worry about all this stuff that you think you got to have in place. Pick up the phone, start calling people. A few weeks later, she had a $10,000 a month client, right? Now she's building upon that. A lot of times what we need, listen, if you're going to build a product that is going to take $100,000 worth of R&D, that's different than if you're going to be a consultant, right? If you're going to build a web design firm, if you're going to build something like that, Most jobs with people with whom I work, they don't need that much capital to start their business. If you are in a place where you have a product or something like that, that you want to build and take out to the world, that's different right? And you, you may need a longer runway to get there. But you know, the fourth pillar is radically outcomes focused and it's stripping away all the BS and realizing what is actually important to build my business. People think there's way too much that goes into having to build a business and they hide behind logo. They hide behind the website. I got to get that perfect. I got to get the perfect product offering. And they sit and they spend their reels for six months. Meanwhile, their competitor is just picking up the phone. Like you said, sales cures all and just selling. It's like, I don't have a website. I don't have a logo and I'm just selling. So it does depend on what you have. I mean, I had one client, it was going to take $300,000 worth of investment and he had to go do that. Okay. Well, you may need a, there's a couple things. One is if you really want to do that and you've defined the vision and you got to define, this is what I want my life to be. Is this company, how bad do you want it? Do you want it enough to spend the hours when you're home from your current job doing it? If your current job doesn't allow you to build your current company, decide What's the minimum I can, what's my destitution level? What can I survive on? If I really want it, right? Go get another job, get a part-time job, get two part-time jobs that allows you the mind share to start building this and flying around the country and raising capital, whatever it is. But the biggest mistake I see when people do it is they think you can't plan to your vision. You have to plan from your vision. And so they sit there and they think, oh my gosh, I gotta go and I'm gonna start my business and I wanna start it by next July. What am I gonna do tomorrow, you know? Rather than saying, this is what I want the company to look like July 31st, here's what I got to do July 30th, July 29th, July 28th. And you reverse engineer it to tomorrow and you break it up into small bites so that you're not trying to eat the entire elephant tomorrow or on Thursday or on Friday, right? You you reverse engineer that. That's one of the biggest challenges I see is everyone looks at the end goal and just tries to hit home runs starting today. And it's like, no, man, you got to reverse engineer it and see what it looks like.
0: Well, you know, I think what happens a lot of the times is that people are victims of their own success. You get that raise, you get that promotion, you know, you have that extra money. You upgrade your house. You get that car. Oh yeah. You you get that convertible. You get your. You get all that. You get the club membership. You start to do the travel. You get the special credit card that you just love to use. And then all of a sudden, what you're doing effectively is that you're depleting your runway. Number one. But number two, you're also making it more difficult, more risky, more challenging to be able to go and take risk to get yourself out of that situation. It's the Robert Kawasaki treadmill analogy where you get more money, you turn the treadmill up, and you just continue to run. You know, people in Silicon Valley, startup people, entrepreneurs, they talk about setting up your runway. They talk about downgrading. They talk about getting yourself to a place where you don't have all those cars, you don't have all that overhead, and that you effectively decrease your monthly nut so that you can take the risk that you need to. But a lot of people feel stuck. You know, they've got kids and they, their spouses are comfortable to a certain extent. How can you get out of that? How can you say, you know what, I don't care about the Joneses anymore, and I'm going to go get a one-bedroom apartment so that I can take risk of my life?
1: Yeah, I mean, you have to clearly define your vision. And if it's a vision that's not important enough to you, it's not your vision. What do you want your life to look like? And that's sometimes the most, the hardest question for people to answer. they, they can been conditioned to keep up with the Joneses. They've been conditioned about the house. They've been conditioned to all that. Meanwhile, their world is crumbling around them, right? You know, their relationship with their kids sucks. You know, I had one guy and he called me and he's the same guy who I said, how much do you want for your wife? It's like I asked him questions. I said, how's your relationship with your wife? And there's like a five second pause. That's all you need to tell me. You know, do you love your wife? I love my wife more than anything but your relationship, when I asked you, you had to take a five second pause. What's more important to you? That house? What do you think your wife really wants? And if your wife wants the house more than you, then maybe your relationship isn't as strong as you think it is. Um, there's a great book. Uh, John David Mann is the co-author. For the life of me, I'm friends with John. I can't remember the, uh, the, the other co-author's name, but it's called The Latte Factor. Uh, hit the bestseller charts. And I interviewed John David Mann on my, I think it's David Bach is the, is the other co-author. And he talks about that and those choices. And the number one fallacy that they share is that people think that to reach financial freedom, they need to increase their income. And that is almost never the case. Why? Because of exactly what you said. I have more money, so I'm going to upgrade my house. I have more money and I'm going to upgrade my car. And it's called the latte factor, right? Because well, if you just gave up your lattes every day, you would actually save this much and if you invested it at compound interest and all that, right? They're not telling you specifically to give up your lattes, but what they are saying is life's about choices. And you may feel that you're a victim, but really, you may feel you're a victim of external circumstances, but you become a victim of your choices. It's your choice to get that house. It's your choice to get that car. And trust me, I was there. I got four kids. I got a wife. You know, we had cars. We downgraded our cars. You know what? They get me where I need to go. And I may downgrade even more. Once you start experiencing freedom, once you, we downgraded our income, started making, making different choices according to what we want, and only then did we start traveling the world with less money because we could, because we've reverse engineered the life that we actually want instead of becoming a victim of external circumstances or external expectations.
0: Well, on this path of realization for all of us, I mean, one of the realities is failure. And, you know, as the owner of a software company that's been growing very quickly, and that went through a number of trials and tribulations to really find our footing, I'm referring to Dub.com, video communication platform you know, in that path, there was failure. And it started with Dub as a company, but it also started with previous ventures that I've been involved with. In one way or another, you know, my path has been sort of riddled with successes, but also failures. And it's really from the failures that you are able to find your learnings, to understand real, true product market fit, to figure out what your purpose is and how you can accomplish that. So what is some specific advice that you can give to folks on their path in enduring failure? Because, you know, we don't want to glamorize the idea of going and pursuing your best life, going and quote unquote, quitting your job, starting that consulting service, starting that business, investing into that software company along that path. You can fail seven or 17 or 777 times. Many people do on their path to success. Give us some ways to endure that, to deal with that, to learn from that and to quote unquote, dust the ash off us, dust the dust off us and pick us up.
1: Yeah. You know, one thing is that's why it's so important to have that life vision. Of where you want to go come hell or high water i'm going to get there because if you have a failure but you're failing on the wrong things if that makes sense you know you're failing on something that's not taking you where you want to go then put it to the side mothball it if you're failing on things that are taking you in the direction you want to go then they're it's worth it to fail when i shut down my agency right i listened to the gurus now i had done all this stuff before but for some reason. You know, you quit your agency and you, you kind of switch focus and you're like, oh, I don't know what I'm doing now. You know, it's that scarcity mindset, my limiting beliefs. I'm not good enough. I got to hire experts in personal development, right? Principles are the same, regardless of where you go, tactics and strategy. So I hired this guru and we did a ton of Facebook ads. I spent tens of thousands of dollars, did the webinar and all that. I got zero clients. Now at that point, I dipped into a bunch of my savings, right? At that point, it would have been very easy to say, well, you know what? This didn't work out. I'm going to go back to my agency. But instead, I said, All right, something other people are doing it. So I know it can be done. What do I have to do here? Let's reverse engineer it. One thing I realized was I didn't really know what I wanted my company, my speaking training coaching company to be. And I needed to figure that out. So I got to work. I actually hired a coach to help me figure that out. I went back to kind of first principles and started just doing a video every day. I'm just going to throw a video out there. And as I do that video, you know, a lot of times when you write or when you speak, you can kind of through that process, it's kind of therapeutic, figure out where you want to go and figure out your message as you do that. And I did that, I did a video for 90 days. And over that time, my audience began to grow and my message began to crystallize of what I wanted to do. And when I finally really hit Got it to that point after 90 days where it crystallized. I got three clients in my first week and then I kept doing it and I found out, wow, I'm pretty good at online video. And I started doing videos, getting online people in. Now I've paired that with outbound, picking up the phone, calling, I have a sales team and all that good stuff. But if I didn't know clearly where I wanted to go, I wouldn't have known that it's worth it to put up with the lost money, (laughs) the investment, you know, if you fail, quote unquote, fail but you fail on the right things. That failure was an investment in learning how you're going to do it correctly in the future. You know, it's like Thomas Edison, right? He failed 999 times. And then that final time was the time he got it. He said, I didn't fail 999 times or whatever it was, 9,999 times. Those were 999 attempts at learning the right way to do it. What you got to learn the difference of is, and this is why you have to have that clear life vision is if you're failing on the right things. Cause there's a lot of people who build businesses and they realize I did it. This is not taking me where I want to go at all. And now I'm unfulfilled. So why the hell did I even build this? That in of itself was a failure that, that that was a learning experience to then build a company the right way in a way that fulfilled me.
0: So something that you mentioned really resonated with me in terms of your path to sort of create original content, to create your daily videos for 90 days. And then as a result, getting clients from that process. So I actually went through a very similar process in my own career, my own life, where I was agency executive for a number of years, you know, had big budgets, um, would spend a lot of money on lead generation. And I sort of realized that the path is through really original content. Now, you, it, it's great to put money behind uh, videos when you can or ads to a certain extent, but really creating the personality, creating the original content, getting an audience of true subscribers that are engaged, that are interested, is, I, I think, in my opinion, it's, it's the best ROI in terms of effort. Now, my question for you is, what are some specific learnings that you've sort of amassed on your path to be able to get into this video flow? You've got a great setup here. I love the backdrop. I love the mic. I love the headset. It looks all very professional. A lot of people suffer from that. You know, Dub has 13,000 users. We've got petabytes of data on how people are creating videos, how people are sharing those videos, how they're sharing them on Gmail and LinkedIn and through their CRM. And what's really interesting to me is that the data doesn't tell us one thing. And that people suffer from video phobia. A lot of people feel like they're being imposters, that they can't get into their flow. You don't suffer from that. Maybe you did in the past. But you know, I love your general aura and all your content. Give us some tricks on how to overcome that and how to be a better, quote unquote, video personality, video storyteller. Yeah.
1: I mean, you know, the fact of the matter is there's probably some people who just aren't good at video. I mean, I had one guy say, Oh, look at my video. And it looked like he was making like a hostage. Like he, he was the hostage in a hostage state. <laughs> it's like, it's like, all right, man, don't do video. Cause you're turning people off right now. You can get better at it. There's coaches that can help you do it better. You know, start by putting yourself out there, maybe with non-video, start by writing, start by sharing your thoughts and your opinions and your message. Even if it's written right? Get used to putting your thoughts out there, getting feedback, and yes, having people criticize you, having people fire back at you. That's kind of a baby step to get there. I also, I can't remember who it was, shared an example of like, do your first video, literally turn on the camera and say, my name's John or Jane Doe, and this is my first video, thank you, and then just turn it off and put it out there, you know? Do something so small that you just get used to Seeing that, looking in that little dot, right? Little trick I do is I use, um, and this isn't, I've never been afraid of getting on video. My biggest problem at first was I had to make it perfect, right? And it would take like 62 takes, right? So one is limit the time that you're going to allot to do the video. It's Parkinson's law, right? If I allot an hour for one video, a minute, a 30 second or minute video, it's going to take me an hour. If I allot two minutes, you know what? I'd get it on the first take. <laughs> you're forced to do it. But when you, like, let's say you have your phone, right? When I put my phone out there, first of all, turn it around, use this side. Don't use this side. And uh, if you're listening on the podcast, I mean, don't do a selfie, turn around the side. So you can't watch yourself in the screen. It's distracting. First of all, second of all, you're going to watch yourself and you're going to look, you're not looking at the little black dot, right? So it looks like you're not looking, talking to the audience. And it also, you can get that perfection and you're like, you are know, like a wind blow. I don't have a any hair on my head, but when my blow your hair out and then you got to do a new take, right? So turn it around. When you start looking at that little dot, pretend you're talking to one person, pretend you're just having a conversation with one person. I do this not only when I film a video and I I picture a specific person in my life that I'm having a conversation with and I focus on them. I do that when I'm on the stage too. It could be a thousand people. It could be 10 people. I pick out like one or two people in the audience and I make eye contact with them on a regular basis. I focus like I'm talking to them and it takes away kind of the pressure that there might be a thousand people in the room or a thousand people watching the video. Those are some tips that I give people to kind of get over that, but even start, go back and start with there's some people they're afraid of video they have wow. video phobia. Sometimes it spills over into social media phobia and even putting a thought out there in the written word. So start with some writing, put your thoughts out there little baby steps, get in a little kiddie pool. Right. And then maybe make one really short video. Hey, I'm Jane. This is my first video. Thanks for watching. Put that out there. Oh, wow. You got that out of the way. And then when you do that, you know, turn the camera around, don't look at yourself. You know what I tend to do is I film it and then I don't even watch it. I just post it because if I watch it, then I get, to, Oh, that's wrong. I'm going to go refilm it. Oh, I didn't like that. You know, you probably didn't. listen, even Gary V's videos. I mean, he's got a team filming him, right? But his videos are pretty raw. You know, the sound isn't always perfect. He's walking down the street, a bus drives back and beeps the hall. People are sick of slick and they got that on, and they still get that on TV, right? The 30 second slick ad. They want authentic, true authenticity, where you're not acting like someone else, you're being yourself, which is, uh, you know, something else. I, another, you know, you can't be authentic if you don't know your vision and who you are, (laughs) which is something much deeper, but take baby steps when you do the videos.
0: Yeah, I think my path, because I I wasn't always comfortable on video. It it took some time for me to get comfortable with it. Two years ago, you wouldn't find me doing any videos. Now I do videos, sometimes dozens of times per day. YouTube, one-to-one video using Dove, Gmail, LinkedIn, all over the place. One of the things that I had to do in my life is that I had to record 100 videos and just throw them away. I was doing walk-in talks. I was doing stuff at my desk. I would just record myself talking. And then on my way home, I'd click play. And then just hear what the hell I was saying and saying, am I being honest? Am I being authentic? Am I fronting? Am I trying to be someone that I'm not? Is this scalable? Is this sustainable? Is this helping me on my path for my larger vision? And if any of the answers to that was no, or maybe, or I don't know, I'd be like, I'm just going to invest a little bit more time until the point where I just get comfortable and don't have to feel so contrived, so focused on the production and the perfection. And rather, I can just speak to the video like I'm speaking to a friend. And now I think what's really worked for me is that doing video is actually therapeutic for me. You know, when I'm in a stressful situation, when I get a flat tire, when something drops, when I drop my phone, I'll record it. I'll make fun of myself. You know, maybe I use the content, maybe I don't. Um, But just that mindset of being able to kind of capture content and just kind of go through my life, it really has actually made me happier and sort of made life a little bit more fun. I also think that it's important to, I think to your point, is to lean into whatever is going on in your life. If you're going to constantly try to make your hair perfect and avoid the bus from driving by, you're always going to be thinking about that. The fact is, is that when we converse at a coffee shop, there's sounds, there's noise, there's issues. It's the same thing with video. People are accustomed to that. People are comfortable with that. So I always would encourage people to just be natural, pretend like you're conversing to a friend, love the fact that you just said that. And just be your best self and be authentic and just have fun with it. Because if you take yourself too seriously, you're probably going to stop doing it after a while. Absolutely. 100%. You know? <laughs> so, you know, that said, where can folks find you? I'd love to get a URL, socials.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm very active on LinkedIn, as we've talked about. But if you go to Kurt Mercadante.com, which is my name, it's a it's a mouthful. Actually, you know what you could do? Go to fivepillarsoffreedom.com. That's easier, right? And it takes you to my website, a landing page of my website, where you can get chapter one of my book free. But all the other fun links about me are there as well, fivepillarsoffreedom.com. And my videos, my blog post, my podcast, the Freedom Club podcast, how to get the book, where to find me elsewhere.
0: Cool. And then on LinkedIn, how do folks find you?
1: Yeah, it's linkedin.com slash in slash Kurt
0: type. Okay, got it. Very cool, Kurt. I really appreciate your time. This was a profound conversation. I think a lot of people need to hear it.
1: Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on.
0: Cool. Thanks, Kurt.
1: Thanks.